Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. We're your hosts, Sarah Seibert and Melissa Harris. Today, we're going to look into the past year plus of federal agencies' efforts to accelerate testing and diagnostics of COVID-19. The initiative, called the Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, or RADx, has transformed COVID-19 testing across the country. The effort started with the National Institutes of Health in April 2020 with $1.5 billion of funding from the Paycheck Protection Program and Healthcare Enhancement Act to bring innovative COVID-19 diagnostic solutions to use at speed. And now through RADx, we not only have traditional polymerase chain reaction tests or PCR testing, but we also have rapid testing capabilities and some at-home testing. So on the show today, we're going to look at the path the National Institutes of Health took to scale up testing capabilities with technological innovation to bridge the testing disparities gap in underserved communities. And lastly, how NIH worked with partner agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to deliver community-wide at-home testing. But first, how did we get to RADx? And why is the typical Food and Drug Administration regulatory process not good enough? The National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, or NIBIB, has been overseeing a lot of the emerging technologies and solutions from RADx, and the Institute's Discovery Science and Technology Program Director, Michael Wolfson, went into why RADx was necessary from the start of the pandemic. The process of getting something from an idea from bench to bedside, which is from an idea through development through maturity, through manufacturing, through FDA regulatory approvals, and through reimbursement, you know, that's a long process that often takes, you know, five, six, seven years. And we compress that all down into one year, not by taking shortcuts, but by really focusing and having really tight harmony between everyone. There's nothing like a crisis to get everyone to work together. And that's exactly what happened is that, you know, the FDA didn't change their standards they still have high standards for the quality of a product, but they're working more closely with us at NIH and our awardees to make sure that there's a smooth path. There's a smooth transition from they know what's coming, they know what issues they're going to have with it. We're preparing, we know what they're expecting, and we can walk through all those things really quickly in rapid succession. We have at least two meetings a week with the FDA and our awardees. That's unheard of. And it's a standing meeting. And that's one aspect of how things are different. Another aspect is that NIH, you know, our gold standard is peer review. Our peer review process is what we all strive for, which is the harsh light of deep and thoughtful and rigorous evaluation of every project that comes in. And again, we didn't skimp, we just accelerated. We went with a process developed for some of our development networks. So the point of care technology research network, Pockturn. Is something that started by my colleague Tiffany Lash about 13 years ago. And that was developed to help accelerate the development of point of care technologies. Throughout its lifetime, it's been mostly for STDs, respiratory diseases, cardiac diseases, nothing like this, nothing like a response to a pandemic. And we've adapted that and expanded it. You know, the annual budget for that program is about $5 million. We've spent almost a billion dollars in the last year on this program. So it's been a real rocket shot, but we've, the process they use is still peer reviewed. It's just not the normal NIH process. And we involve heavily industry experts and consultants and in vitro diagnostic executives from companies who are retired or 
consulting or independent to serve as our sounding board and to help manage and oversee these projects as they go. And so we're we're working with the best and we're funding the best and all working together in this really tight-knit operation. From the multi-pronged collaboration and big infusion of funding, Radex took off pretty quickly. You know, we started off the program, we received 716 applications, proposals. And we did a deep dive on each of them and we looked at them all independently. Is it good? Does it have a life? Does it have legs? Is it going to have a market? Do they have a manufacturing process that's viable, have a reasonable regulatory pathway? We narrowed that down to 47 projects and that were sort of an early stage where they need to do some de-risking. And we've funded 29 large-scale manufacturing projects in that time. And some of those were really fast to hop straight to manufacturing, and some of those we've just turned on in the last couple of weeks. So the ones that lagged, they took some time to do de-risking to figure out, is this approach going to work? Are there really... Some of them are truly novel, things that have never been used in humans for diagnosing disease before. New kinds of technologies we have. One of the most exciting ones is a special microscope that can identify viral particles, the hulu fish. That one's not there yet, but we're excited about its progress. On the other end of the spectrum are things that were already out there. We funded companies like Helix and Aegis um, and the Broad Institute that were already doing COVID-19 testing before they walked in our door, and we helped accelerate how many tests they could run. And some in between, like Visby that had a product that was almost on the market for STDs, and we got them over the hump for COVID-19 for the SARS-CoV-2 testing. And they're out there with their point-of-care PCR tests. So it's a little bit of everything. We, we've tried to hedge our bets in every direction. Speaking of hedging their bets, Radix embraced both pre-existing and new technologies to get the tests we needed lined up. These efforts were taken on through Radix Tech, which focused on technologies that were less mature and needed development, and Radix ATB, or Advanced Technology Platforms which was for scaling up existing solutions. The two programs, which NIBIB largely ran, started issuing contracts at the end of July last year, leading the overall scaling up of testing capabilities and access that we have today. Now we're at the point where we're producing about half of the tests being produced in the country, about 250 million tests in the time since last April and now, and effectively since September and now, now we're producing about 1.7 million tests per day. That's a little less than 1% of the population every day we're providing tests for. So it's been this sprint on all categories and all directions to try to tighten down all the loose ends of all these different approaches. We haven't just put one bet and ridden it. We've taken 29 big bets. These different approaches have meant different testing solutions for COVID-19. As Melissa said earlier, the PCR test has been the classic but longer turnaround result test, and we have also developed the rapid tests. But the emerging over-the-counter at-home COVID-19 tests, also called lateral flow antigen tests, have the potential to be the most game-changing. I would say the most impactful ones have been the lateral flow antigen tests. Those are as you mentioned earlier, they're not the most sensitive, but they are super duper cheap. And they've been approved. A few of them have been approved for at-home use, not only at-home use, but over-the-counter purchase. And if we can do that, 
then people can just go to their local pharmacy, buy, say, an Alum or Quidel test strip, bring it home and test themselves wherever they need to, whenever they're feeling they need to, even if they're not sure, even if they went into contact with somebody. NIH and the CDC have actually done community-wide testing of these at-home COVID-19 tests in two communities, which we'll go into in a little bit. But before we do, we also wanted to address some important challenges in COVID-19 testing that have led us to the point we're at now. First, there's been the challenge of getting rapid and at-home tests to be as accurate as a traditional PCR test. But Wolfson told us that studies have shown that if you sample two to three times a week with an antigen test, it's about as reliable and robust as a PCR-based test. We've seen this model work, especially at places like universities that do frequent rapid testing to keep their students and staff safe. But even at that, there has been the supply chain issue of getting enough plastics and swabs to actually have the physical test ready to distribute and use. As we've been testing upwards of millions of people per day, and on top of that, testing access has also been a major obstacle. From there, we want to turn to a particular area that is important to look at with COVID-19 testing, providing accessibility to underserved populations. This is where Radix Up, or Radix Underserved Populations, comes into the picture. We'll let Dr. Monica Webb-Hooper, the Deputy Director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, go into the importance of Radix Up and how access is informing some key next steps that we'll go into a bit. RADx underserved populations is focused on populations who have a greater risk of exposure to COVID-19, who have a greater risk of being hospitalized and uh, from succumbing to the illness. And we have focused on populations that the National Institutes of Health have designated as health disparities populations or populations with health disparities. And they include Latino, Hispanic individuals, African-American or Black persons, Asian persons, American Indian, Alaska Native individuals, sexual and gender minority populations, individuals who are socioeconomically disadvantaged in general, underserved rural populations, and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. We are also focused on COVID-19 medically and or socially vulnerable populations. These include groups who are at especially high risk of exposure and potentially worse outcomes. And just to give you a sampling of the groups who meet this description would be populations who are homeless, who have medical comorbidities, kind of pre-existing before being um, exposed to COVID-19, rural communities, immigrant populations, communities with high levels of air pollution, pregnant or postpartum women would be another example. And I think in terms of the factors that are leading to this disparate impact of the virus within these and other populations, I think the factors can be themed in buckets, so related to health and health care, socioeconomics, and what we call social determinants of health. And we, we can't ignore the backdrop of just structural inequities, which are also associated with poor health outcomes in general. So for instance, early on, particularly early on, 
But even now, there are what we call testing deserts. So these are geographic locations for which testing is not easily accessible. Occupational exposures is another major factor driving disparities. I think much has been reported about racial and ethnic minority individuals being employed in essential jobs or jobs that we realized were essential that force exposure to the virus. And that leads to disproportionate exposure risk and transmission and so on. Also, we know that individuals who are underserved, racial ethnic minority individuals and other underserved groups also were more likely to need to rely on public transportation to live in close housing quarters, often with multi-generational families, some individuals who are working outside of the home, and some individuals who may not be. Also, there are structural barriers such as the digital divide. So earlier on in the pandemic, when you really needed to be able to have internet access, mobile or otherwise, you know, Wi-Fi in the home, to be able to learn about this virus in real time, to be able to make appointments, find out where you could get testing, all of those things factor in. And then, of course, we have the healthcare factors where our populations with health disparities have, uh, are more likely to have more limited healthcare access or be underinsured or uninsured. And then, of course, there's the fear. Fear played a major factor for many people who, coming into the pandemic experience, did not have the most positive experiences, if you will, to say it mildly, with the healthcare system and with health professionals. So then you add COVID, a novel virus that none of us really understand or know anything about. It created lots of fear and anxiety in general. And you can imagine how that fear might be exacerbated or worsened for people who already face a variety of insecurities, such as economic, food, and as it relates to healthcare. With these many barriers in mind, Radix Up was an essential piece of getting testing right in the country. Radix Up fully launched in November with its first phase, starting as a consortium of linked community-engaged research projects, focusing on increasing access and uptake of tests. This way, Radix Up looks for novel strategies to rapidly implement testing to increase the reach, accessibility, and uptake in communities with highest needs. The second phase of Radix Up involves community-engaged research, understanding that working with underserved communities to develop effective interventions and barriers to testing. So to give you a couple of examples of the kinds of topics that the projects are working on, they are working on innovative strategies to increase testing, uptake, sustainability is a big part of this also, in environments such as medical centers, some are focusing on community health clinics, tribal facilities and clinics, delivering care in remote settings. Some are focused on correctional facilities, nursing homes. And they're also testing and looking at the effectiveness of testing in locations that are outside of the healthcare setting. So pop-up sites and rotating sites and mobile units. And I think it's important that these projects are leveraging their existing community relationships and their cultural knowledge and drawing from their partners and their cultural knowledge to drive these testing implementation strategies. Specifically, 
as we think about entering communities, trust building, and culturally appropriate ways of engaging with and tapping the knowledge that you know, is held within communities to understand the best practices for reducing multiple levels of testing barriers. Another example, I think, of some of the projects is that they're looking at strategies for adopting and adapting effective you know, communication, education, or other engagement strategies that will hopefully enhance patient and clinician communication as it relates to the implementation and acceptability of testing. And then there is another component of RedXUp that we call the social, ethical, and behavioral implications of testing, or SEBI for short. And in the social, ethical, and behavioral implications arm, if you will, of RedXUp, it's about understanding the cultural implications, the social and ethical pieces of what happens when you test groups that we know are underserved. What are the next steps there, right? Especially among individuals who may not have the privilege of being able to self-isolate or truly quarantine. There are also challenges with regard to health literacy and making sure that patients interpret their test results correctly. So it's a multi-layered initiative and we are early in the process. And so, you know, I wish I had more findings to share right now, but we expect that over the next few months, findings will begin to be disseminated because rapid impact we know is an important part of addressing the pandemic. One of the testing options that we've seen amid the multi-layered approaches is in the emergence of at-home testing. At-home tests can help overcome some of the barriers within the healthcare system, but only if they are made accessible to all populations. At-home tests have very strong potential. I think it's one of, for me, one of the most exciting developments in the diagnostics landscape for this virus, because I think that they do have the potential to address some of the barriers that I've talked about with regard to fear of interaction with the healthcare system, even things like needing to take time off of work, even if it's for a few hours to go and seek testing. So the ability to do to conduct the test in the, in the comfort of one's own home has very strong potential. A few things would be necessary, I think, to help for these tests to really help us in bridging this gap with health disparities. First, I think they need to be affordable. And the you know, tests are even, you know, $40. It can seem like a lot to an individual. So the test needs to be affordable because in many sites you can get a free COVID test if you present at the clinic, if you present at the pharmacy. And so if an at-home test has a cost associated with it, especially one that is considered high and, you know, even a cost that others might think of as minimal, $40 can be a lot for someone who is, you know, in an economically insecure or disadvantaged situation. So they have to be affordable. They have to, I think, have clear and simple instructions written at the sixth grade reading level is sort of the standard for health education materials so that individuals can clearly understand how to take the test, what needs to happen to make sure that they're actually getting a sample that would be able to be assayed and it also needs to be clear and convenient in terms of how to obtain the test results. Okay, I've taken this test. Now, what do I do? What do I do with this swab? How do I get my test results? Is it immediate? Do I have to mail my test results somewhere? And if it is an immediate result, how would I interpret 
those test results. Or if I mail, right? So you take the sample, you mail it off, and in a short time you get the results back. You know, will they would they get a phone call to do that? Will they have to get uh, read what the test results are? So all of those things are are going to be important to consider. And then the other issue I think is people need to know what to do once they get the test results, whether they are positive or negative, to stay healthy and to protect their loved ones. Dr. Webb Hooper said that these at-home testing efforts will continue to drive new findings that support future research, services, and solutions long after the pandemic is over. To do this, Radix Up and its partner agencies are building sustainable infrastructures around these initiatives that will hopefully support response efforts to future challenges. Radix Up, because of the importance and the uniqueness and the investment that NIH has made to this initiative, we have strong expectations for the results in terms of helping us understand the pandemic itself and patterns of infection, especially in the communities that we're focused on. But we also expect to learn a lot about the various testing strategies that are acceptable in communities and that can be delivered in a way that is that increases uptake. We know that, you know, unless this virus is fully eradicated and no longer exists, testing will always be important. And so even with vaccine availability, we will have to make sure that if individuals have symptoms that may be consistent with COVID, which also kind of overlap with some other, you know, cold symptoms, we have to make sure that people are still going in to receive tests. So what are the ways that we can do that? And how can we make sure that we are building sustainable infrastructure that outlasts COVID? And I think we've seen a lot of progress with regard to infrastructure for things like testing. We don't want that to end, even once this pandemic is hopefully soon in our rearview mirror. We want to see those structures be maintained and sustained for the long term so that we can continue to monitor and control the spread of any future outbreaks of this virus or anything else that may be coming that is currently unforeseen, so that we are in a better position. And I think what we will learn from Radix Up in particular is how we can work with communities to deliver effective research. I think there is a myth that underserved communities, that racial ethnic minority communities do not wish to participate in the scientific process or participate in clinical trials. I know from my own research, and for many other researchers who do this work, that that is not true. And we have multiple well-controlled studies to document this. RADXUP will be another huge initiative to demonstrate, because it's all focused on underserved populations, that we can engage these communities, but it'll help us understand what works in doing that, and perhaps what may not work as well in doing that. And that can drive future research as we think about addressing disparities in a number of conditions that have existed for a really long time and that need our attention. Cross-agency collaboration is critical to fostering new ideas and driving innovation across the health sector. As Dr. Webb Hooper details, working with other agencies provides a broader view of the healthcare system as a whole, as well as some of the smaller obstacles to overcome to deliver a more sustainable infrastructure. We kind of take a whole of government approach for the RADx initiative in general, 
and for all of the work that NIH is focused on. I think of these as complementary projects. So of course we work with our colleagues across the Department of Health and Human Services to, so that we're not duplicating efforts, but we're complementary in the efforts and the offerings that we have. And so working with various CDC offices, we're able to develop initiatives that are complementary, that provide funding opportunities, not only to, to scientists or researchers at academic institutions, but federally qualified health centers that also have a testing, a, a large testing initiative at historically black colleges and universities, working with the Office of Minority Health, who've also received COVID-19 funding to work within communities. We are all connected and we all stay connected and aware of what we are doing and develop our offerings in such a way that we're advancing the science, we're advancing the knowledge. And the goal here is to improve public and population health. And I think that these initiatives together have really further demonstrated what we already knew, but in a really compact way and in an urgent way that we can work together very successfully to promote health and to help address the pandemic. The NIH component of this is the scientific response. So our job is to help develop the evidence base that public health officials can use, that health systems can use, that organizations can use to drive their efforts so that they understand and have evidence about what works and what doesn't. It informs policy. So what NIH offers is the science, which, you know, we've been, I've been very proud of the work happening at NIH to really drive the science of understanding COVID-19 and the associated health disparities. I mean, there are new studies that NIH has supported being released every day with new information about the pandemic. And that's why it's important for consumers to stay well aware of the changes because this the knowledge base does emerge, you know, so rapidly. And so we also help by disseminating findings to our partner and our sister agencies to help advance their work. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed underlying social, economic, and structural inequities within our healthcare system. To address gaps in the healthcare system, policymakers have to bake equity in to remove barriers and advance services for underserved populations. Health equity, right? Health equity is a term that we hear now with increasing frequency. And I think that's a direct result of the collision of events that occurred in 2020. And the pandemic in particular has taught us a lot about health disparities and how they unfold in real time. We have few examples of this magnitude that any current person you know, who's alive can say they witnessed in real time. And although, for instance, I'm deputy director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, so we live and breathe, unfortunately, health disparities and, and working on science to promote minority health and reduce health disparities is our mission. So for me, I, I have to say I wasn't really surprised that we've seen what we've observed as it relates to COVID-19 disparities. But I think for many people, it has taught them a lot about health disparities, the factors that are associated with health disparities. You know, I think especially biomedical scientists, public health officials, you know, some physicians really early on thought about health disparities from a purely biomedical lens. So there are maybe biological differences or even genetic differences that might lead to susceptibility for diseases and for health disparities among underserved groups. I think COVID has taught us that it is more about the social determinants of health 
and the environmental and social and inequity factors that lead to racial and ethnic minority individuals and other underserved groups experiencing the brunt of poor health outcomes and experiencing this kind of undue burden. So I think it's taught us a lot about how health disparities happen and why and how our infrastructure does need to change to be more equitable. And I think the short answer is on the equity piece is that we need to bake equity in as a key ingredient in all of our efforts, scientific efforts, public health efforts, health system efforts. And I think it sounds like a simple concept, and it is a term that we are hearing with increasing frequency, which is good, but conducting true equity work is quite the challenge. And so to advance this kind of science of health equity and the practice of health equity, which is not an outcome, it's an assurance, it means that we are intentional about how we build our programs, how we engage with communities, and how we develop and execute our science and our programs. It means that we plan at the outset for how we're gonna do that. How will we bake equity in as our primary ingredient? And what this pandemic has shown us is if we neglect to add in this very special ingredient as we begin or as we set up programs, the effects of that will be reflected in the end results. So I think of health equity as our aspirational goal, which is the, the assurance, not the outcome, the assurance of the highest level of health for all people. That means that we have to close these gaps, which are what we know as healthcare disparities. We have to demonstrate that we value everyone equally, that we address avoidable inequities, that we provide supports for people that are proportional to their needs, and that we do everything possible to remove any barriers to optimal health. That's how we get to equity. As we heard from Dr. Webb Hooper, the Department of Health and Human Services has taken a whole-of-government approach to respond to the pandemic, using information and innovation gained from RADx to fuel new initiatives to fight COVID-19. Under a recent collaborative initiative by CDC and NIH called Say Yes COVID Test, these agencies worked together to offer free COVID-19 testing kits to residents in Pitt County, North Carolina, and Hamilton County, Tennessee. We had Dr. Elizabeth Deneno, Associate Deputy Director for Surveillance, Epidemiology, and Laboratory Sciences at the CDC, tell us more about the effort. I'm really excited to tell you about this new initiative, really from CDC and NIH, and it's to bring free COVID-19 testing into the households in two U.S. communities. So our goal is to saturate these communities with tests and have people frequently test themselves so that we see a reduction in community transmission. We believe that allowing people to understand their COVID status in real time will enable them to take measures to protect their communities from the spread of COVID, especially as we await vaccination efforts to ramp up. And I might just mention that Sometimes we're calling at-home testing self-testing instead because that's a little bit more specific to what the test is, although the test is often marketed as an at-home test. So just so you know, when I'm using the term self-testing or at-home testing, they're basically the same thing. But for this uh, initiative, these free tests will ship out to residents in these two locations in the U.S., it has already rolled out in Pitt County, which contains Greenville, North Carolina. 
And then uh, in the next two weeks or so, we'll roll it out to Hamilton County in Tennessee, which also contains the city of Chattanooga. And as many as 160,000 residents across the two communities will have access to free, these free at-home rapid antigen tests. And so how it'll work is these residents in the two counties will receive these completely free tests. Now, through NIH's program to rapidly accelerate diagnostic testing, also known as RADx, NIH procured 2 million of these tests. So they're individual tests. There's a million available for each county. Now, the tests come in a kit of 25, and they will be distributed free of charge to households. So that means that there's about 40,000 households that will receive a kit in each county. And we want them to test frequently for about a month. So we're going to ask the households to identify up to two members to test three times a week. Specifically, we're asking households to choose members who are most potentially at risk of COVID due to their exposure outside the household. The recommendation for testing around three times a week is based on very recent studies that show the importance of frequent serial antigen testing as a very good way to pick up infection, even compared to a lab-based test. So all residents in those two communities are eligible. The test that's being used in this project is the Quidel QuickView, and that's an over-the-counter antigen COVID test. It received an emergency use authorization from FDA for over-the-counter use without a prescription on March 31st. Earlier in the month of March, it received a EUA for prescription use. So right now it's available without a prescription to all residents. Anyone 14 or older can self-collect an interior nearest specimen and children two years or older can use the test with the assistance of an adult. Also, people who are vaccinated or already had COVID can use the test, but we're not prioritizing them within the household. We would like to reserve the test for people who are not vaccinated when possible. There are two main ways that residents can receive these test kits. First, they can order their test kits online for home delivery, or they can pick them up at a local distribution site. In both states, we are working with community organizations, such as faith-based and other groups, to serve as distribution points throughout the county. There's also a free online tool that's available also as a phone app that will provide testing instructions, information to help understand the test results, and also text message reminders about frequent testing, reminding people, hey, you need to test again, it's, it's Wednesday. <laughs> so we want people to test very frequently. And then finally, strong community engagement efforts are underway to ensure that vulnerable and underserved populations are aware and are able to benefit from this opportunity. That is basically how the program will work. The CDC and NIH selected these two communities based on local infection rates, public availability of accurate COVID-19 tracking data, existing community relationships through the NIH RADx UP program, and local infrastructure to support the project. We selected the two counties based on several factors. So first, we did a nationwide scan of local infect COVID infection rates, public availability of accurate COVID-19 data, such as hospitalization rates, whether those areas had wastewater surveillance. But so first we looked to see, you know, what data were available and what, how communities at the time 
they had high prevalence of COVID or high hospitalization rates. We wanted to, you know, concentrate our impact in those areas. And then we also looked to see which areas had some existing community relationships. So for instance, since this is an NIH-sponsored intervention, we looked at the availability of NIH's rapid acceleration of diagnostics of underserved populations, which is called the RADx. Up program because we wanted to make sure we had some infrastructure to be able to support local communities. So we wanted to focus, if possible, on areas that also co-located with RADx Up. Um, and then we also looked at just local infrastructure. You know, we worked, we identified several counties that this could possibly work in, and we talked to all of them. And then we wanted to get their input. Are they able, interested? Is this something they thought they could take on? So it was really a collaborative effort between a look at the data, a look what was available, um, support systems, and then asking the health departments if they were interested to participate. And that's how we came to the um, final determination of these two counties. Collaboration has proven to be essential in the national pandemic response. As CDC works with the NIH to continue this initiative, they will collaborate with other agencies and academia to better understand the data collected from this new project. I think we're just, you know, trying to get this particular project off the ground. In terms of this study, we'll, we'll continue to work with NIH to understand what we've found. Now, CDC is not um, evaluating our roles to help conduct the public health activity, but we will work with researchers at NIH also, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Duke University are working with CDC and NIH to um, review the data, to analyze some of the publicly available data. So I think going forward, we'll try to work to understand you know, how this worked so that we can report those results and disseminate what happened with the initiative through other government reports like MMWRs, other peer-reviewed articles, and that can inform public health authorities across the United States. Going forward, it's working with NIH and our partners to understand the benefits and the challenges to this testing program. This initiative is just the first step in CDC's COVID-19 testing efforts. By analyzing these findings, Dr. Deneno hopes that this work will drive new areas of research and support future solutions even past the pandemic. I mean, I just think that we are really excited for this. This is a really novel testing program that is based on experiences of other uh, very well-received self-test programs that CDC is offering, such as HIV self-testing, STD self-testing. You know, these are, we have experience and we've seen the benefits to self-tests in those areas, not only during COVID, but before, and we hope after COVID to reduce the spread of HIV and STDs. So I think this COVID self-test you know, we're going to learn a lot more about it, but we think that based on those other experiences, this will help people understand their COVID status in real time. And this will help them, those people who might not know that they were transmitting the virus, if we can find some of those using this program, that will hopefully help reduce transmission within the community. So this is really an effort to protect families and communities from onward transmission of COVID. So we're really excited about what we'll find. Hopefully, we'll continue to build off the testing innovation accelerator that RADx, the NIH, the CDC, and the country as a whole have brought throughout the pandemic 
We're still fighting COVID-19 and other current public health threats, and new ones will certainly come down the pipeline in the future. But models like those we talked about today offer new hope for the future of diagnostics in the public health space. That's all with HealthCast for now. Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe with your favorite podcast app or listen to more at governmentciomedia.com. We look forward to you listening again soon. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.